Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to a long-awaited episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, broadcasting live from ground three of Hurricane Ian, whatever the hell that bastard's name is. Anyhow, we're back. We want to thank each and every one of you for joining us for another episode and joining us, as always, from the high and dry lands of Texas, Mr. Jeff Copsetta, and joining us from the semi-low floodplains of Alabama, Mr. Henry Sledge. Gentlemen, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> Pretty good, yeah. You got the dry part right about Texas, that's for sure. We are real dry right now. Well, except for what, was it three years ago when Dallas flooded real bad? When you guys got all that rain? Was that Dallas? Probably, yeah. That's like about three four, four hours Yeah, away, three or four so years ago, I remember yeah. watching a lot of YouTube videos of mad, wicked flooding going on in your area. But uh, yeah. it's been, what, two weeks since I've talked to you guys, other than through text messages? How's everybody doing? Well, hanging in there, I'll, let me just jump right out and say that, Don, I know you've had a lot going on with the hurricane stuff. I've, I've had a lot going on with sorting out my mom's situation. Uh, I just want to say that I am grateful for both of you and your friendship. And I'm, I'm really grateful to be a part of this show because, I mean, the thing that's become really evident to me over the last couple of weeks is the way the three of us support each other. You know, like, Jeff, I know you check on Don. You know, he's been having a rough time. A couple of weeks ago, Don just up and called me out of the blue because he knew about my mom's situation. Jeff, you called me yesterday to just check on me because you texted me and said, hey, how's it going? And I shot you back this message that just didn't sound too good because it was reflective of my mood at the time. And, you know, it, I don't know, man, I'm not trying to get corny right out of the gate, but I just it means a lot to me that we support each other the way we do. And that's coming. That's saying a lot for three old dudes, because as everybody knows, dudes aren't really into the touchy feely. <laughs> how you doing? I mean, you text, you know, your wife, or your wife texts her friends or her aunt or her mom or whatever. And you know, a simple question will go on for three and a half hours and 38 paragraphs. Dudes are like, Hey, right. what's going on? I'm good. Cool. Talk to you later. But no, oh. I, I, and I feel the same way. And I know Jeff feels the same way. There's been times where all three of us have had some issues going on and, um, we're always there. We, uh, we always reach out, we get the information, but we're not overbearing. And, uh, I feel the same way, and Jeff has reached out to me multiple times through this whole hurricane nonsense, asked me how I'm doing, and then he asked me, I think yesterday, if I had talked to you about what's going on, and you know, and I told him I had, and and so yeah, we definitely have a nice little nice knit family going on here, and uh, and uh, I love it too. I'm I'm so thrilled, and I, I feel very honored to have both y'all as part of the show as well. Amen. Yeah, you know, I, I'll say that it, there came a time right around, right after, I guess I should say, when, when Henry, when you when you joined us and we kind of became this trio that, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, when when, when Don asked me to come on as his co-host, I, man, I, you know, I was nervous and I did a lot of episodes and I, I can probably go back and listen to some of them and go, oh my gosh, I'm retarded. <laughs> <laughs> um because it's it, it was repetition, repetition, for me. repetition, and, and when when Henry, it's just we feel to me, it's just we're complete now. Not that Don and I didn't have some great shows, but it was just I feel like the the, the three of us now make it kind of this. There's a completeness, yeah. And for me, you know, specifically, 
I no longer care about what the listeners think. <laughs> we have <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that I'm just, you know, we get comfortable, we know each other and we've, we've got a friendship that, you yeah. know, will last forever. And I just really enjoy uh, what we do more than worrying about, you know, oh, we got a little, we, we may have a, an extra millisecond of dead air there, or maybe we rambled a little bit on this point and we kind of lost touch of that. You know, it, if people are still listening, then, then they're just like us. And I'm again, proud to be a part of it. Just like you guys, I'm honored as yep. well. It has evolved in, in, in that way. I mean, that's, I've kind of followed that same thought process because, you know, we share a love for the beautiful thing of World War II history and we all kind of come at it from different angles. And man, I, you know, yeah, man, it's just a, it's a positive force in my life that I really appreciate. And hadn't it been about a year that I've been with you guys now? Yeah. I would have to go back and check the dates. Believe it or not, Jeff has a really good subconscious recall ability because I remember early on when he came on the show, he was saying things and he almost had like down to the episode and the dates. He was just pulling dates out of his head and he was almost nailing mm. them when I went back and checked. But mm. yeah, it seems like there's been so many. But it was yeah. episode 92. I think I yeah. think I remember that. Roughly, yeah. It's about right. But, you know, uh, love it, love it, love it. You know, it would have brought a smile to y'all's faces because, you know, we were without power for 10 days. And uh, luckily, as a World War II reenactor, I'm probably a little bit more um, prepared for it than my normal everyday 44-year-old counterpart. Um, you know, I got mm -hmm. propane stoves that I use for camping. I have <laughs> a center making tacos, right? And we don't have a lot of water for dishes and styrofoam plates are gone. You know what I got? I got mess kits. <laughs> so I got the whole family out there eating tacos and mess go. kits out in the driveway. I'm showing my daughter how to wash them. <laughs> and so by the end of the day, I come in and they're washed up, put back together, reassembled, laid out on the plate. I actually just ordered two more today just in case because you never know. But um, That's cool. I don't want to beat the audience over the head with hurricane talk because I'm sure a lot of people saw stuff in the news. But I figured I'd give you guys the option to ask me some questions or whatnot. We'll cover that and then we'll, we'll move on. Uh, for those of you guys who are wondering why we haven't had an episode, it was because, well, I got hit with a hurricane on Wednesday. Storm hit at 12.30 p.m. My power went out at 1.20, which did not surprise me. The power goes out in this neighborhood if someone sneezes the wrong way. Uh, and during Hurricane Irma, I was without power for 16 days. So anyhow, the power went out at 1.20 and did not come on until 11 days later. Um, this hurricane, I saw footage uh, a nasa satellite just passed over it when it was 28 hours away from landing on top of us and at that point the hurricane eye was 32 miles long traveling at a scorching speed of nine miles per hour wow not the winds the winds were 155 but actually moving transitioning at a, mm -hmm. a, a staggering pace of nine miles an hour and then once it made landfall it hit and, and start moving at eight miles an hour now if anybody's seen the movie twister Whenever the eye of the twister comes by, everything kind of calms down and chills. And a lot of times during hurricanes, people kind of ex wait for that eye to pass over. Things will kind of settle down and give you 30, 40 minutes, depending on the speed or how slow it is. Never happened for us. We stayed in that wall. We took a nine-hour, eight-and-a-half-hour ass whooping from 1230 until 945. My mouth's off a little bit, but it was just constant. And it, and it was just 
And one of the scary things about hurricanes is not being able to see. So we intentionally left our slider because the way it was strategically positioned in our house. We un- we didn't cover that one up. We left everything else. So I'm just watching my fence fly away, watching. I'm hearing my roof tiles peeling off. Like, and I, this is my third hurricane that I've lived through without power. I've, I've actually been here through five of them, but this, only three of them have caused power. This is the first time I've actually had any major damage. And my brother was traveling from Vegas to Montana on vacation and carries, I'm like, go on Amazon and Amazon would load and you click on something. It would just crap out. And we saw two tarps, 16 by 20 for 25 bucks. I called my brother, I said, go on Amazon, order me these tarps. I've been through here long enough to know that there won't be tarps in this city for six months. And I'm listening to my tiles rip off my roof. And so luckily he ordered tarps for me and got them sent to my house. But uh, other than that, if you guys have any questions, we'll answer them and then we'll get down to brass tacks. Well, um, <laughs> why, what motivates you to live there? <laughs> you know, that's a good question. And you, you're experiencing this in Texas as well, especially after the pandemic. Everybody's just leaving the really, really locked down states and they're moving to quote unquote free states. And I jokingly thought to myself, there's a price to pay in, every, in a free state. And we just paid it. But to be honest with you, yeah. if you think about it logically, with the exception of, what, four states, every state has a potential for natural disasters. California earthquakes. Um, I've had friends in New Jersey four or five years ago who got stuck in a blizzard. A buddy of mine I played Xbox with, he was literally using a bathroom in a Lowe's bucket in his basement because the blizzard froze Duh. his water pipes. He had no power, no water for two weeks. We know that we were just saying earlier, Texas flooded out. Louisiana has floods. Alabama often gets floods. You get Kansas gets tornadoes. So if everybody moved out of every single state that had a potential for natural disasters, we'd be like China living on top of each other because no one would live anywhere because there are only like five states that you're free in natural disasters. And I know the other question for people is why didn't anybody evacuate? We had a huge loss of life down here. Uh, Sanibel, Fort Myers Beach, and Pine Island are our three barrier islands. And this is the first time we've had deaths that aren't Usually a hurricane comes and it's 90-year-old Sheila passed away because she lost power and her oxygen wasn't working. Or, you know, homeboy was, you know, he had needed kidney transplant, his dialysis machine lost power. So that kind of stuff sadly goes with the, but when you're hearing about drowning and things like that, people are like, why didn't anybody leave? Before the storm, I often explain to people, living in a hurricane area and having the conan of, of uncertainty is like me saying, hey, Jeff. Sometime next week, you may or may not get punched in the nose when you're walking down the hallway. It could happen. It could not. And so you, you put your head on a swivel and you look around. And you think, well, I don't see anything going on. You go about your life. And chances are you won't get punched. Um, the cone of uncertainty, they call it, kept saying it's going to Tampa. It's going to Tampa. It's going to zip right past us. Um, like I said, I've lived through five hurricanes. Only three have ever, ever hit us. Um, and so you just don't know. The storm hit us on Wednesday. By Saturday, the European model starts showing it's going to go towards us. The rest of them are going north. People who've lived down here through Hurricane Charlie, which hit in 2004, remember the European model said the same thing, and that son of a bitch hung a hard right and landed right on top of us. And so we're watching, and we're watching. And so Friday, I go out and say, you know what? Never know. It probably won't hit us, but once again, my power goes out. If someone sneezes the wrong way in my town, I have well water, so it means I'm going to lose power and I'm going to lose water. So I went out and bought 
two 24-packs of bottled water and like three one-gallon jugs of drinking water, and that's it. I'm watching the new people down here walking out with pallets and pallets of water. And I went over to Ace Hardware, and I got two propane tanks for my Roller 2 kit. They had a bunch more. I could have bought them, but my whole thing is, hey, take what I need, leave something for other people. We all experienced what happened during COVID with the toilet paper hand sanitizer being bought out because people are panic buying. And so I, I bought the essentials and bought some food items. And as the weekend started going, we, we kept watching the storm. And then Monday came along, and they're like, yeah, this thing might be getting closer. Now, my boss had just moved down here a year and a half ago from California. And being from California, i.e. earthquakes, he had prepared for worst-case scenario because he's lived through some earthquakes in his day. So he did. He bought a generator. So he already had a big-ass generator on, on his house. Not a permanent one, but a portable one that's so big it requires an engine lift to put in your truck. And he got on the waiting list a year and a half ago for Starlink through Tesla. And just so happened, three weeks before the storm, we got our, he got his Starlink kit in. And so his, his um, contingency plan was storm comes through, we lose power, come to my house, we'll kick on the generator, we'll get the Starlink up and running, we continue to service people because... We do managed services for networks, but most of our customers are in Connecticut, South Dakota. We have customers all over the United States, so we still have to manage them. But we start seeing things get more and more sketchy. So half the day Monday, we closed up the shop. I came home, put up my shutters, did, went out and bought some more food. Tuesday, went out fishing. <laughs> it's like, got to get some fishing because the weather's going to suck. And then Wednesday, it was game on. And I told people... Living through a hurricane, hurricanes, that's just the tip of it. Living through a hurricane is the time from the time it hits till the time you get your power and your services restored. I just found out this morning, a mile and a half from where I live, there's still people without power. And I have no Whoa. idea why. We took an ass whooping here, but we were not devastated. We are not Pine Island, which is about 10 minutes from here. It's actually right where my dad used to live. We're not Fort Myers Beach. And I'm watching TikTok before I found this out. I'm seeing all the cats going back to texas on lima and they're all leaving hey we're all wrapped up and then i'm finding out like why aren't we servicing the people a mile and a half away can't answer that question but um so oh a big thanks to my neighbor after irma he put a generator on the side of his house woke up the next morning fence particles all over the place shingles all over the place i lost a palm tree out in front of my house so those of you who are in feng shui my house will give you anxiety because i have a palm tree on one side of my door and the other one's missing <laughs> I lost a bunch of shingles. Um, I tarped up most of my roof. I actually got the blue tarp people from FEMA coming out. going to do the rest of my roof. Both cars got paint damage. Look like a four-year-old with sandpapers out my driveway. The Volkswagen is annihilated. My Tacoma has some good spots on it. Um, but my neighbor brought me an extension cord. He said, here you go. Hooked up this generator, so I was able to power my refrigerator, my TV, three fans, and a place to charge our phones. Did what I did in Irma, took a network cable, cut the end off, made it about six inches long, pulled the insulation off one of the wires, stuck it in my TV. That gave me TV. Before I did that, I posted a few pictures to Facebook about my house. Once I got that signal and turned on the TV and saw Fort Myers Beach, Sanibel, and Pine Island, I stopped complaining. I wow. was heartbroken. Um, Sariana and I were actually there Sunday, once again. Friday, we're like, hey, the storm might be coming. Sunday, we're still like, hey, let's go to the beach. So we were down there Sunday swimming right at Alani Kai, right at the end of the pier. Carrie was at home sick. Sarah and I went to Dairy Queen. 
Um, they have like a little screen in area. All the screens were open. Birds flying in there, stealing French fries. She's laughing. I'm thinking, wow, we're making some memories. She'll remember this when she's a kid. Little did I know three days later, that place would no longer exist. The entire pier is gone. All of Times Square, that whole area, Dairy Queen, it's nothing but just concrete slabs. My dad lived, moved two miles from Sanibel, got four feet of water through his trailer, lost everything, all his music equipment, everything, just gone. Um, my neighbor also, we took my garden hose. And here's a little tip for you guys who are ever in a state of emergency, especially if you have well water and your neighbor has a generator to power their well. He just so happened to have a female adapter. It's just a female end with a nipple. We cut the end off my garden hose, put the adapter on there, put hose clamp, connected it to his faucet, connected it to mine. Not only was he providing me with power, but he was backfeeding my house with the water off his water pump, which gave us cold showers and we could at least flush our toilets. Because last year during Irma, I was going out every morning filling up my five-gallon jerry can for World War II reenacting and using that to feed the dogs and flush the toilets. And so luckily we were able to uh, survive doing that. And, uh, yep, 10 days, um, just everything's just down here is destroyed. Just now, like the, the – uh, Grocery stores are just now getting their breads back in, their meats. I mean, you go there and it's still empty shelves. It's just, it's crazy. I will say this. I think a few weeks ago we were kind of talking about how people say, I wish we can get back to 912, about how everybody treated each other during 912. We just lived that for two weeks. Everybody, and it, and this isn't the first time. It, living down here through hurricanes is the only time you really talk to your neighbors. And we met all the neighbors again and talked to them and, uh, Looked out for each other. Once I got my refrigerator, I was taking every single empty water bottle, filling up with water, taking one-gallon Ziploc bags, filling up water, putting it in my freezer, making ice blocks for the people across the street to put in their cooler so they can have ice for their coolers. And just uh, I went out one day, and store was open. I grabbed four bags of ice, drove down the street, just gave them out to random people, and uh, just take care of each other down here. But uh, to answer your question, Jeff, I mean, I don't know. You wouldn't leave Texas if something was coming your way, would you? Stand up and fight. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't think we're threatened as much here in the hill country as as other places in Texas. I mean, the good yeah, forest right, fire could some cause you some damage. Yeah, and I know that they do to get a lot more snow and ice up there. You know, when you talk about Dallas, but for you, that would be like worrying about the weather in Jacksonville. You know, it's totally different there than where you're at. So it, it's that's quite a separation. And Let me say um, one more thing, just because I forgot. The reason I got to the death, why didn't y'all leave? I've been out here since 2004. You guys know how the media gets during election time, right? Everything's just media. It's just blown out of proportion. Just hammer, hammer, hammer. The weather channel is that way during hurricane season. They know they're going to get the views. They know their commercial sales are going to go through the roof. And they always dramatize and make everything 30 times worse than you think it's going to be. I was about to say, they overplay it. I mean, at Jim Cantori, man, everybody jokes. That guy's that. a dick. Let me tell you why. During Hurricane Irma, he came down here. And I was working in radio. You got 16,000 people in what was called Jermaine Arena. That's where our ECHL hockey team plays, the Everblades. And he was standing out in front of the arena full of people and he thought his mic was off and he was still alive he turned around and said i wouldn't want to be in that place look at that place that place is going to get decimated 
It's like, oh, stupid. You're supposed to be a professional. But let me say this about the Weather Channel. You got all these people down here from New Jersey, New York, California. All the, all the new people moved down here during the pandemic. This is our first hurricane. The local news has stuff, but once again, they're what? Six in the morning, noon, six thirty, seven, and 11 o'clock at night. Other than that, you got to wait for updates with the initial, the occasional break-ins. So you go to the Weather Channel. You go to get what's going on. They play this high-intense stinger music in the background, get your, your anxiety up. They'll tell you what's going to happen, and then they cut and play 15 minutes of news footage from Hurricane Charlie and Hurricane Wilma when everybody got their ass kicked instead of just giving you the information. And then they sit in their little green screen room, and they'll have this water coming up and showing you storm surge, storm surge, you're all going to die, this and that. This year, they were right. I'll give it to them. You're right. To answer the question, why didn't people on Fort Myers Beach evacuate? Why didn't people on Sanibel evacuate? Why didn't people on Pine Island evacuate? Because the boy who cried wolf got right one time. Since 2004, it's the storm surge is coming. The storm surge is coming. Not just a warning. Get the hell out. It's the overdramatic, overdramatic. We got to sell it. We got to get our reels put together so our weather guys can get better jobs and better markets. Since 2004, not a single storm surge has came. During Irma, some flooding happened in Estero just from rainwater and poor drainage in their sewer systems. And so people who evacuated during Charlie, Irma, Ivan, Wilma, spending thousands upon thousands of dollars evacuating for no reason. So after a while, I admit it, you get jaded. Storm's not coming, and it's not going to be that bad. Well, it finally happened. People stayed people died there's footage of people riding it out on the roofs because their house got flooded i cannot imagine clinging to the top of my roof for eight goddamn hours while the wind's coming and uh there's footage they didn't trail on the media but there's footage out there of drone footage flying over and you see all the coffins laid out on fort myers beach people in the know who know people right now even on fort myers beach the only people out there are cleanup crews they are not even letting residents on there right now because the amount of bodies and shit is so bad. Um, so why didn't you leave? Because you get jaded after a while. After 18 years of being told, you know, the, the wolf's come, the wolf's come. He never showed up. Not saying it's right, not saying it's wrong, but that's why a lot of people didn't leave. I mean, you got the people not in those areas, but some of the areas that flooded in uh, inland. A lot of people can't afford to leave. I mean, I didn't leave. Every time I went to the grocery store, walked out with $200 out of my pocket. I mean, I got minor damage, so I'm not going to complain. I lost a fence, missed some shingles. I got to basically pay three deductibles between my two cars and my house. Even that, I'm probably out just in food, ice, water, supplies. I'm probably out two grand just from two weeks of just buying shit to survive. And so just hurricanes in general are expensive. A lot of people can't afford to leave. So that's why a lot of people didn't leave. But anyhow, that's that's my, my diatribe on why people didn't leave. Sad thing is, Jeff, you know, Carrie's a school teacher. She just lost five students who had to relocate because they lost their homes. It's uh, yeah. it's crazy. But, uh, yeah, it's tough. It's definitely a, a rough one down here, but uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Do my best Forrest Gump impression. But uh, thanks for all the people who are reaching out to us and giving us the best wishes. And, uh, you know, we'll rebuild like we always do, but I don't know. Where are you going to go, right? <laughs> Go back to Kentucky and have to live through the cold winter. Come up here to Alabama and you get decimated by tornadoes every so often. There you go. I mean, the last one was six years ago. But I've been down here since 2004, and this is the first time that I've seen anything like this. This Mm. is, And 
if the thing wasn't just moving so damn slow, if it would have moved through here at least 15 miles an hour, it would have been. And that's why the flooding was so bad because it was spinning. It just pushed the water right up, right up and over. And, uh, yeah, but it's, it's pretty rough. But uh, anyhow, let's get on to the topic of World War II, unless you guys have any further questions. No, I forgot we were going to talk about World War II. Real quick, checking on on YouTube. What's up, Gabe Riviera? We're doing pretty good. And uh, Pigsaw Janet, there's nothing left. That is the truth, friend. There's absolutely nothing left in some of those areas. But uh, what do you guys have on your list of things you want to talk about? Well, uh, real quick, uh, Gabe Rivera is a buddy of mine, mm-hmm. uh, so thanks for shouting out. That uh, dude has some of the best <laughs> Marine Corps impression photos you will ever see. Him and his guys get down to brass tacks. They put out some fantastic impressions, and he knows his stuff. He'll he'll pick a date. Yes. This was Saipan. On all, you know, he'll pick the date, the hour, and the mission, and have like exa- he's definitely got the thread count, and the canteens, and everything worked out exactly the way it needs to be. And so he's one of the he's one of the really he's one of the guys you look at and say, "God, my impression sucks." <laughs> <laughs> but we well, I bet to, you that makes it feel real good because yeah, he used to he used to work out at the Nimitz for a long time. When I say work, I mean volunteer, of course. Sure. And, as uh, part of the living history detachment. And I was really happy to work with him for a few years. And uh, I remember when he told me he was moving to, to Washington, I was like, Oh, okay. Have fun. In <laughs> uh, but it looks like he's doing good up there. And, and yeah, he's got some great impressions. He's certainly come a long way. He's been, he's been reenacting since like forever. And um, yeah, yeah, it's nice to see his stuff on, on social every now and then. And he actually helped me out before he left. He helped me. He did some welding on my Jeep uh, on, on the hood, uh, on the hinge there. So uh, Gabe, it's still, still holding strong and uh, I miss you, buddy. And uh, so, yeah, thanks for the shout out. You know, that's one of the skills I wish I would, obviously I'm not too old to learn now, but I've always kind of regretted the fact I never learned how to weld. Not that I have anything to weld, but that's just one of the skills I like to have in my back pocket. Yeah, I did a lot of welding as a park ranger, and I just don't have it in me to spend the money to have a welder here for that one time I might need it. Yeah, you can get one Harbor and Freight tool for like twenty nine bucks. Yeah, good. <laughs> I got buddies. <laughs> you got Gabe's. What do you need a Harbor Freight and tool? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <sighs> so, so, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, we tossed around some ideas about tonight, and. And I, you know, Don, I told you I'd love to hear a little bit more about your PBY Catalina stories. We kind of, we kind of snuck that in last episode and didn't realize it was going to be this long before we, before we saw each other again. So yep. I'm interested in that for sure. Well, what's it been? Two weeks or three? Or did did we do a show last week? I no. can't. Man, the days are blurry. No, I got no. my power back no. late yeah, last right. Monday, and so we, okay. we did an episode of what's what's in your head on Tuesday. But I got my I got my power back on Sunday, but I didn't get my internet back until late Monday night. That's so, right. That's and right. we were planning on Wednesday, and then I had. But anyhow, here so here we are. So it's been at least two weeks. Gotcha. All right. Give or take. Yeah, it's been two weeks because got hit on Wednesday, didn't have power for ten days, and got my power back, and then no internet. So yeah, it's been. It's been two weeks, but yeah, it's, it's been a stretch. So let me give out the caveat PBY. I just stumbled across a video three or four weeks ago while minding my own business and going down a YouTube rabbit hole. So I am by no means a PB and Y expert. 
um, when Jeff said, hey, I want to hear a little bit more about, I did uh, some quick studying and note taking. And so I'm just going to give you the broad strokes. I'm not going to be able to tell you the stuff from Batum with great expertise like we usually do of on a subject such as Guadalcanal or anything in the Pacific. But I'll give you the rundown because there is definitely some cool things. Uh, the PB&Y, PB&Y, peanut butter and jelly, <laughs> the consolidated PBY Catalina, as you all know, is a flying boat and amphibious aircraft that was produced between the years of 1930 to 1940s-ish. Designated PBY was determined in accordance with the United States Navy Aircraft Designation System of 1922. PB stand represents patrol bomber and Y being the code assigned to the Consolidation Aircraft Manufacturing Company. I guess there's a lot more people making airplanes before they got to them, hence the letter Y. Um, as I was saying, the co-creator Major Reuben Fleet was the first pilot in the United States airmail back in 1918. And as we said, uh, President Woodrow Wilson at the time was there to see that thing kick off. Because, I mean, think about it. I mean, prior to that, we we're still probably highly uh, re- relying on train transportation and maybe in some areas even probably still the Pony Express. I mean, obviously back in 1918, the Model T probably was – capable going up to 20 miles an hour if there was any paved roads around and so air mail probably sped that i couldn't even imagine how long it took to get mail just continentally from one side of the country to the other so to introduce air mail one airplanes was new so that was cool but just the i i mean that's kind of like us getting the internet back in the you know the late 90s or, or well or 80s when it came it came out but it didn't become readily available until most people got in the 90s with america online and all that crap but Yep, so 1918, one of the first pilots was Major Reuben Fleet. Originally designed to be a patrol bomber with a long operational range of 4,000 miles, it was intended to locate and attack enemy transports at sea in order to disrupt enemy supply lines. Going back prior to the war, though, United States Navy being smart and seeing into the future and realizing they need to get their fleet and their technology up to speed in the 1930s. United States Navy invested millions of dollars in developing the long range flying boats for this purpose. As we know, flying boats had the advantages of not requiring runways and the effect having an entire ocean available, which is why later on in the war, they became great rescue planes because as we mentioned three weeks ago, the, the blister window, they called it allowed for pretty much a, almost a 180 degree view of the ocean below to, to find uh, people floating about. As we're saying before, and Jeff knew this because you guys are both in aviation, but I'm not really an aviation guy. So when I read this, I was like, well, that's pretty damn cool technology for 1930, 1940. A heavy canvas type cloth on the wings were hand stitched, which blew my mind. I figured at that point we'd have mechanized manufacturing that could sew that on there because, you know, you got to take the human air out of it, but I guess air and manufacturing probably just as high. And so the heavy canvas cloth on the wings were hand stitched and then coated with a chemical to tighten the material for durability and better aerodynamics. And as we stated before, which is kind of cool too, necessity being the mother of invention, the PBY was the first plane whose wings were designed to attach after completion due to the lack of floor space in the manufacturing plant. You know, you're trying to roll these things out in heavy speed and, can't just go making more uh, foot space. And so they just, hey, we'll just put the wings on outside. That's a good idea. During the quality control process, engineers needed a way to test the planes were, in fact, watertight. Once again, due to lack of floor space, there was no room for pools or water tanks. 
So they simply filled each aircraft with water after completion of the outer shell of the plane. After tests of the interior were completed and they were satisfied with the watertight components, the interior was finally installed along with the uh, major electronic systems. As we said before, the PBY was used as a subspotter and was the first plane to keep shipping lanes opened after being equipped with bombs and guns. Some of the battle roles that the PBYs ran, the RAF Coastal Command Catalina with Ensign Leonard B. Smith of the United States Navy as co-pilot located the German battleship Bismarck on May 26, 1941, some 690, 690 nautical miles northwest of Brest, which was attempting to evade the Royal Navy forces as she sought to join with the Kriegsmarine forces in Brest. The sighting eventually led up to the destruction of the German battleship. And on December 7th, 1941, before the Japanese amphibious landing on Kota Baru, is that how you say it, Henry? How do you spell it? K-O-T-A-B-H-A-R-U. Kota Baru? Yeah, Kota Baru. And Malaya, M-A-L-A-Y-A. Kota Baru, Malaya. The invasion forces were approached by a Catalina flying boat of number 205 squadron of the RAF. The aircraft was shot down by five uh, Najima Kai 27 fighters before it could radio for help um, off of the off of Singapore. The flying, uh, flying officer Patrick Bedell, commanding of the Catalina, and his seven crew members became the first allied, allied casualties in the war with Japan. Let's see, Patrol Wing 10 of the United States uh, Asiatic fleet had 44 Catalinas under its command, but lost 41 within 90 days. That's a huge loss of planes. And I would suspect that a lot of that problem, I, I can't imagine those things were very fast, fast planes compared to a zero. So, I mean, that's a huge loss. Uh, let see. Patrol Wing 10 lost its main seaplane tender, USS Langley, to Japanese aircraft during the Dutch East Indies campaign while it was transporting 32 Curtis P-40 Warhawk fighter planes. A flight of Catalina spotted the Japanese fleet approaching Midway Island, beginning the Battle of Midway. And um, interestingly enough, let me go to Guadalcanal. Skip down here to Guadalcanal. Oh, there's a great Guadalcanal story I know you're going to come to. During the Guadalcanal campaign, some of the Navy's PBYs were painted matte black and sent on night bombing, torpedoing, and strafing missions against the Japanese supplies, vessels, and warships, including conducting... Uh, interdiction raids on Tokyo Express. The PBYs were later called the Black Cats. Subsequently, special squadron of Black Cats were formed, commencing in December 1942, with an additional 13 squadrons coming into service thereafter. Flying slowly at night, uh, dipping to ships, massed high, the Black Cats bomb strafed, torpedoed all kinds of Japanese vessels, sinking and or damaging thousands of tons of ships. The Black Cats also performed bombing, strafing, and harassment regarding land-based Japanese installations, as well as conducting reconnaissance and search and rescue operations. The Black Cat Squadron continued to be active into May 1944 with the PBY, I'm sorry, the PB4Y2 beginning to come into service in greater numbers and replacing the PBYs. The last Black Cat Squadron returning to the U.S. in early 1945. Catalinas were employed by every branch of the United States military as rescue aircrafts. Um, see, one PBY piloted by um, Adrian Marks, U.S. Navy, rescued 56 sailors in the high sea from the Navy cruiser Indianapolis. Um, after the ship was sunk, 
When there was no more room inside, the crew tied sailors to the wing. Obviously, the aircraft could not fly in this condition. Instead, it acted like a lifeboat, protecting the sailors from exposure and the risk of shark attacks until rescue ships arrived. Catalinas continued to function in search and rescue roles for decades after the war's end. Catalinas served every branch of the United States Armed Forces and the Armed Forces and Navies as uh, I'm sorry, in the armed forces and navies of many other nations, the last military PBY served until 1980s. As of 2021, 86 years after the first flight, the aircraft continues to fly as a water bomber or air tanker, if you will, in aerial firefighting operations in some parts of the world. None remain in military service. An estimated 4,051 Catalina, can, uh, Cansos, and GSTs of all versions were produced between June of 1930 until May of 1945 for the United States Navy, the United States Armed Forces, the Coast Guard, and allied nations, as well as civilian customers. And that is a brief, quick little rundown on a PBY. What mission were you ta- were you thinking I was going to get to about Guadalcanal, Henry? It, I think it was uh, – so William Hall – or Bull Halsey's pilot was named Jack Krim, I yep. believe – and he actually took off on his own little bombing mission. In oh, that's PBY. right, with the grenades. Huh? <laughs> the grenades, yeah. <clears throat> and, yeah, they got the torpedoes off some of the downed planes that, from the Cactus Air Force, right? Yeah, maybe that was it. But he, uh, what did, I can't remember the particulars of it. Did he go up the slot and actually make a bombing run yeah, I think on he, a, I, some of the Japanese Tokyo Express? Yes, I, I vaguely remember that now from reading the Guadalcanal Diaries. Mm-hmm. I believe that was in there. But, absolutely. And... The, the the idea that that plane did so much with the technology of the of the time, considering it was you know, once again, b- comparison to other planes, it wasn't the fastest thing in the world, but it was just such a well diverse piece of equipment that it, the amount of people that thing rescued too was tremendous. I was just about to say if you're if you're a, a Navy Dauntless or F four F or you know Torpedo Avenger pilot or a Marine pilot or an Army P forty or P thirty eight pilot. And you go down, you get shot down somewhere in the Solomons or anywhere in the Pacific. Imagine the, the beauty of seeing a PBY coming for you. Yeah, because you're two. You got three options, well, four options really: an island, a PBY, an American ship, or a Japanese ship. And you definitely don't want to see the Japanese ship. The island's going to be probably your second to last option because who knows how long you'll be there. And we've heard many of stories where these guys land on islands, wait three days, and either paddle to another one or s- try mm-hmm. to swim to another one because there's nothing there. There's no resources. There's you know, to stay there would just be a slow death as well. And so, yeah, to see one of those things coming coming your way. And for those of you who grew up in the 90s, you remember that's the that's the beloved plane of the Chippendales Rescue Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> Featured in every opening scene. But, yeah, that's the uh, the little details on the PBY. I'm they sure- got a great example of it at the Pensacola Naval Aviation Museum. How... <laughs> I'm I'm sure they're pretty damn big, but I mean, comparison to equipment of its time, how big are those things? It takes up a lot of room in that in that building. I mean, it, I think the one they've got, it may just be. It's been a lot of years since I've been down there. I got to confess, but I think they've got like the side cutaway, so you can look in and see all the crew stations, and and then they've got mannequins, you know, kitted up in flight gear. I mean, it's beautifully done. Yeah. But yeah, pretty good size airplane. I mean, I can't off the top of my head. I can't reel off actual figures. Nope. I was kind of surprised in all that the information I looked up. It didn't really say anything about you know payload or how much weight the thing could haul. But I mean, that thing was definitely a workhorse. 
and it, it saved a lot of people. I think it's worth mentioning too. Uh, I think so often when we think of the Catalina, we think of the Pacific, but uh, I think it's overshadowed, like a lot of things in the Atlantic, uh, how many uh, B-17, B-24, Spitfire, Lancaster, uh, Krubin that, that it picked up as well. Um, I think I sent you guys a couple pictures I came across of uh, some PBYs that actually served in the 8th Air Force Station in England as part of a, of a rescue unit there. And they're, yeah, you see the crew and they almost look in the one picture, they must look out of place because they look like a crew from a B 17, mm-hmm. except the aircraft behind them is a, is a gray or a khaki colored, uh, PBY. And, you know, I think we, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't give a mention to their service, picking up guys in the English channel or North sea. That's a well. great point because I would have, I I'm in that, like I just automatically assume that it's the light blue. It's serving in the Pacific. Right. That's what I've associated right. with. I, would, I wouldn't have even thought about those things, yeah. picking up down B-17 guys, or B-24 guys out of the English channel. All over. Well, and the crazy yeah. thing too, is you heard me read some of those war roles, even the Pacific. It's like, it seemed like the, even though the Navy had been spending so much time and in investing in those, it seemed like most of the people who are flying them were RAF members. It's like, did they get a majority of them because they had, but, you know, but I guess maybe because technically, you know, New Zealand, Australian, you know, they kind of had relationships with, you know, a lot of those barrier islands that were under the, you know, the purview of, you know, Great Britain and all that. So a lot of those planes were flown by RAF pilots, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. They seem to have their hands on a, a lot of them. I'm trying to go through here, see if I can see anything about any European theater of operation stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's just, that's just another one of those things, you know, there's, I and mean, we've talked about this before. There's just so many different topics on world war two that, which is great. Cause it always gives us more content to talk about, but there's just so much out there to research. And so if uh, any, any PBY experts are listening to the show and they're yelling at their car stereo while they're driving the street, cause I missed some of the, the more important things, uh, please reach out to us a mail called WTSP world war com. And that goes for anything, really. We've said this so many times. We're not the experts in all things World War II because there's just so much of it. And so if there's a topic you think you can help contribute to, you want to come on the show, you think you can hold a conversation for at least 30 minutes or more, and you want to school us and our audience on some overseen history of World War II, please reach out to us at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And while you're at it and you're on the Internet, please head over to uh, WTSP World War, WTSP worldwar2.com and click on the Patreon link, like and sign up and subscribe and um, it'll go a long way to support what we do here. I will say this window behind me was open for 10 days with the Florida humidity and my mixing board here is not happy. Um, I had to do some some finagling with it to get this thing um, to uh, to work properly. But on that note, let's uh, I want to play a little, little clip from... Uh, Wartime radio I came across earlier today. Oh, thought I was coming across. There it is. America's fighting men need meat. The best meat. Plenty of it. That's the why of the share of the meat plan. That's why we civilians are holding our consumption to two and a half pounds weekly. As a housewife, I find I can still prepare delicious, nourishing meals. 
There's no limit on chicken and fish. And through my butcher, I'm discovering some wonderful new ideas. Now, I'm your neighborhood butcher. You see, we want to help the housewives so we can serve all our customers fairly. Ask us for new recipes and interesting varied menus. We all must cooperate now. Be fair to your fellow Americans. Share the meat because... America's fighting men need meat. The best meat. Plenty of it. You know, we, uh, we've talked in the past about ration stamps, and I, I have a ration stamp book, and I think Jeff has one. We, um, oftentimes, we, thank God, we have such a good infrastructure and way of life in the United States, we never think about the lack of food. But, you know, someone just coming off of a 10-day ass-whooping down here, you quickly, uh, <laughs> when you're walking through the grocery store, when they finally open up, you send a line, and even even now, as I was saying at the beginning of the show, you're walking through the section, and like, well, still no meats available, still no breads available. It's definitely a a reminder of how fragile our infrastructure in our society is here. I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. Um, I did the same thing in Irma. The old saying, when the power goes away, the looters come out to play. Well, I'm in Florida. It's not exactly cool here. And so when you don't have air conditioning, and Jeff can tell you the same thing in Texas, and, and Jeff and, I mean, and Henry in Alabama, uh, no AC, you got to open your windows. And... Um, when you have a family, kids, wife, and all that, you get a little concerned about their safety. And so, just like during Irma, first thing I did is got out the World War II Army cot, laid right in front of the slider with my Glock in my lap while I slept. Because you just, I mean, my privacy fence is gone. All my doors and windows are open. Everybody's sleeping in one room because that's where the fan's at. And so, you you just got to protect your family. And so, you're sleeping there and right in front of an open door, hoping no one comes in in the middle of the night because you, you just never know. And so, you know, you kind of... It's it's kind of a reminder of how quickly things can deteriorate when uh, something as simple, I don't want to say simple as a hurricane, but I mean to go from having power, electricity, air conditioning, food to our gluttonous delight to, um, hey, make sure you eat all that and don't throw that water bottle away because we got to make ice because <laughs> we never know. It's just, it's just a reminder to think, imagine being in Europe, Germany. Those areas that are being bombed and bombed for years and being here in the United States, two and a half pounds of meat a week. I guess that's a lot of meat if you're one person, but if you're like a family of four, especially well, back then, no. you know, people weren't eating incredible burgers and vegetarian diets. I mean, they were all farmers. The amount of farmers we had in this nation and, and imagine the restraint that took too, right? You're a farmer, you got your own cattle, got your own pigs and hogs, but you want to do your part. So I'm sure some of them make more than two and a half pounds of beef a, a, a week, but that's that's a, another part even for people not in directly affected war-torn areas just to not have access to things and being rationed, kind of like what we saw during the pandemic. One roll of toilet paper or whatever it was, you know, water, things are starting to get rationed because people would, would buy it all up. And so it's just a, kind of a quick, stark reminder of how quickly it all can change. The fragility of it, like you said. Mm-hmm. Just the idea of of all that. So, yeah, I came across that clip. I found another one tonight. It's a little long. It's it's actually a commercial for Tootsie Roll, so I'll play it next week. It's it's interesting hearing some of these old radio campaigns. I'll just tell you this, kids. In 1941, a regular Tootsie Roll cost a penny, but if you're good and your parents will let you splurge, you can get the big one for a nickel. <laughs> so uh, 
what do you guys got going on in in your list of World War II stuff? Anything new coming down the pike? Uh, well, well, uh, I, uh, I wanted to mention, uh, an opportunity I had a couple weeks ago. I think it was right before the storm came in. I want to say, uh, had, had an opportunity to talk to the listeners about it, but, um, had a really cool opportunity from somebody who was on our show previously. Uh, you can go back and look at Scott Freund, uh, with the Liberty jump team, but mm-hmm. Scott also, um, besides all the amazing things that he does. And he's been a friend of Henry's for a long time. And, um, he, uh, you can check out his history adventures, uh, on YouTube. The guy's just been everywhere, done it all, um, all over the globe and, and really does some amazing work putting, uh, these videos together, uh, has to me probably has the biggest collection of world war II photographs of anybody that I know, you know, personal, collection of photographs it's unbelievable um just he's just so well-rounded so well-versed it's such a super nice guy and so um he had invited me as with the liberty jump team aspect of it the world war ii you know reenactment uh jump team uh that by the way they have jumped into every drop zone in normandy now the only team that can claim that yeah so um you know he came out to to our air show here uh, you know, earlier this year, back in March and just did a bang up job supporting our, our little museum. And, and we'd like to say it's the biggest little air show in Texas kind of thing. Um, so Liberty jump team had their, their fall training. It's a week long training up in Corsicana, Texas, a couple hours from here and had asked me to come and speak at their, like the little graduation banquet, uh, on that Saturday, they've been working and jumping all week and training, and then they had their little graduation on their last jump. I think it was actually Saturday morning. And then uh, for anybody that could stick around, they had a meal put together and, and a couple of, of guest speakers. And um, let me tell you, uh, when he told me who the other guest speaker was, I was totally floored. Um, it, it Not only is it a World War II vet and uh, an incredible human being, but it's somebody that I used to have come speak at our uh, volunteer appreciation uh, banquets uh, when I used to work at National Museum Pacific War for Company K. And if Gabe's still listening, he would he would know exactly who I'm talking about here. Uh, but his name is Don Graves. He's uh, 97 years old, spent every day of the uh, Iwo Jima operation on that island. He was there for about six weeks. Um, just... Uh, uh, you know, a showstopper when it comes to his speaking, the man has a set of pipes. It's unbelievable. You can probably go on YouTube, look at Don Graves sings the national anthem. Um, you know, he's just unbelievable. And to, to, to be able to, to be next to him at the, at the head table there and to just sit with him in the hospitality suite before, you know, I got to hang out with him for almost a solid hour. Nice. Me and him at the Holiday Inn hospitality suite. Nobody else was around. You know, we 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 drank a cup of you know eight hour old coffee that they still had out there, and just talking about the war in general and uh, the changes that he has seen today. Um, and I mean, what an opportunity! Any any of us would just like to sit down with an Iwo Jima vet for an hour and pick the brain and and just listen and. 
I know uh, this won't do much for our listeners, uh, but if you go back and watch the show, uh, I wanted to show you guys something. We always talk about a book, right? So mm-hmm. this book here, kind of more of a coffee table book, uh, Iwo Jima by Eric Hamill. If you don't have any Eric Hamill books, uh, you are wrong. You have got to get yourself some Eric Hamill in your life. And this particular book, um, the first time I met Don Graves, he was talking about in his presentation, he showed, uh, it was like a, a PowerPoint behind him. He showed a picture of a Marine on a beach on Iwo Jima and said that years after the war, uh, he comes across this picture and he goes, Oh, that's me. Hmm. And so I, and I, when I saw the picture, I said, man, I know I've seen that picture somewhere. So I go through, I have, I have a special shelf. Uh, Iwo Jima books are not behind me or, or over here or on that shelf. They're, they're on a special shelf. Uh, cause I have, I have so many, um, so I went back and I looked and I found it. So the next, uh, the next time I saw him, I made sure to, to, to confirm, okay, this is the picture, right? This is you. And he goes, absolutely. So I leave that bookmarked, uh, with one of his little postcards that he signed here. So, um, again, if you're listening, uh, I'm holding Eric Hamill's book. And if you go to page 75, Eric Hamill's Iwo Jima, you'll see, and it's going to be kind of tough to see, but there's one guy here on the beach there you can see the beach is all cluttered that's the famous foxhole picture right over his shoulder what's that that's the famous foxhole picture where they're kind of on the on the uh beach coming in they're all kind of hunkered down in the box the the bomb craters or foxholes right right yeah that's that's the morning of the invasion the guys just happens they'll be looking right at the camera and that's the man that i just got to spend you know a saturday with just a few weeks ago and the caption is before that they knew that this was done. The caption just reads that this Marine has scrambled across a dead body and a folded litter in his quest for a safe place to hunker down. It appears that an LCVP or an Amtrak has taken a direct hit right off this beach. Um, to hear him talk about uh, what that was like that day. And, you know, he, he was part of the regiment that, that took Suribachi uh, to hear him talk about the flag raising, to hear him talk about, at the very end, um, near that last little Japanese holdout, that little point on the northern end of the island, uh, he said, you know, at, at that point in the battle, he said, I just started feeling bad for the for the enemy, for the Japanese. I said, I just felt bad for him. He said, because they're just they're totally surrounded. Mm-hmm. They got nowhere to go. They've been starving. And he said, we're pushing them into the water. And there's all kinds of PT boats and everything just patrolling the waters, just waiting for these guys to jump in the waters and 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 finish him off. And he said, I just, you know, I, I felt bad for him at that point. Uh, so man, again, I, I never thought I would see him again. He, he, uh, the last time I saw him, he had hurt his hip and we were not sure that he was going to be making the trip to Fredericksburg and the man who was kind of his traveling companion. And he helped him set up this organization called roll call, um, where, you know, they would book him to speak at, at different events all over the country. Um, uh, Don said, look, if, if, if uh, I'll die in Fredericksburg, if it means going there and not missing this banquet. And then that was just a few years ago. And again, to see him, to, to see him still kicking, you know, and, and just as, as good a humor as any. Prime has brought the tear uh, to your eye, I would imagine. Yeah, it was, it was really something. And, um, again, it's just, it's just an opportunity that, uh, I look back and I'm just so thankful for to have, uh, to have had with him. And, 
And it, it kind of brings up another opportunity that I, I wanted to mention. Uh, Henry may know where I'm going with this. Um, uh, back to Scott being such an amazing guy. Uh, and please check his stuff out online. Trust me. Like, it, it, I think he told me he's got about 4,000 pictures just taken wow. during the attack at Pearl Harbor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this man's research helped figure out that um, Alexander Bonnyman may not have been killed as early in the Battle of Tarwa as what was initially thought right? really? because of his photographs, his research. Um, he, he, uh, the last thing he was telling me about, too, was he said, hey, you know, I, I just got recently I just got photos uh, when they recovered Ignatowski's body on Iwo. And so when they, when they got, when they found Iggy, uh, there's some photographs when they recovered Iggy's body and, and he's now got a hold of those. So unbelievable guy. For somebody um, to have that many photos that hasn't been taken over by Getty images is a, is a true, true testament. Cause <laughs> I, I've often said, you know, you've made it in this world when you find a picture, when you can't post a picture of yourself from Google because it's owned by Getty Images. <laughs> they own freaking everything. Everything's that's, got that's a, true. That and the, yeah, uh, either that or Pinterest. Either that or the uh, YouTube channel that, that has all the World War II footage and they put that little rooster water stamp right in the middle uh, of it. Yeah, Critical Past is, yeah. a, is, a, one, is a good one. Yeah. So uh, another opportunity uh, coming down the pike. Um, it looks like, uh, and, and with Scott's help and with Scott's invite, uh, I know myself and, and, and possibly Henry um, will be, we'll be touring the, the South Pacific uh, with Mr. Freund. Uh, wow. it, it's a, it's a three week trip. That's going to um, commemorate the 80th anniversary of my favorite battle in human history uh, that took place on a little, spit of an island in Tarawa Atoll called Basio, or what we know as the Battle of Tarawa. Uh, so it's going to start with three days on Tarawa uh, with, uh, it looks like the the guide for that battle is going to be none other than, than Clay Bonnyman Evans. Uh, which, which we've had Bonnyman's on the show. Branson, right. Uh, and then over to Guadalcanal, uh, we're going to see Bloody Ridge, um, or known as Edson's Ridge, uh, galloping horse, uh, made famous by that wonderful movie. We all love to talk about thin red line. <laughs> One of um, Henry's favorites. Uh, of course, <laughs> you know, the Metanic out Henderson field. And then, um, uh, I think we get to spend some time on Tulagi, which I'm really excited about if, you know, Tulagi was really, truly the first offensive with, I think it was, uh, Baker and dog company of the, uh, first Raider battalion that hit there. And I think there was a company of two paramarines that hit the same morning that we hit on Guadalcanal, but, you know, technically stepped foot on Tulagi first on August 7th of 42. So getting to see Tulagi there in the old cricket field. Um, and I think there was a little uh, shack that JFK stayed at when we converted it to our PT boat base. I think that's still there. Of course, Plum Pudding Island, to get to see that. And then moving further up the chain uh, over to Munda on New Georgia, and then possibly uh, Bougainville, uh, to see the site of Yamamoto's uh, Betty that's still out there uh, in the jungle, protected uh, by, the, by the government of Bougainville. So um, my wife was standing right there, and she said, you, you have to do this. And I have to give her a big shout-out because I've known this woman for over 20 years, and all she talks about is going to Fiji. <laughs> and you can't – I mean, guys, so seriously, the, like, the guilt I'm going to have to be landing in Fiji – 
without my wife on this trip is is just a testament to, to who that woman is and, and what she means to me and and what what it means to uh, have the opportunity to walk some of these same battlefields. So um, it, it's I'm just I'm just mind blown. I've got 13 months to plan, uh, so we're a little ways away. But I just I couldn't hold it in. I wanted to share with you guys, share with the listeners. That's fantastic. Um, and you brought it yeah. up, so I, I don't blame me for this, but. I guess we have to. The real reason people are tuning in, they want to know, they got to hear, they've been waiting on bated breath. It's been two and a half weeks, Jeff. What has your wife purchased recently? <laughs> you said she's gotten into the collection of buying baseball uniforms, baseball gloves, baseball bats. What has she bought? That's the only, people are tuning in, they want to know, bated breath, what has Jeff's wife bought this week? Well, it, a, a thousand things, but if strictly World War II... Or um, 1940s she, era. Yeah. She um, she surprised my son, our oldest. You know, he's 16, big World War II kid. Uh, surprised him with a book about, uh, I couldn't tell you the author of the title right now, but it's a, it's, a, it's a true story about somebody in the Hitler youth that created a rebellion against Hitler. Nice. And uh, yeah, so really cool. Um that you know between logan my, you know my son and uh, his best friend who like i said i i want to maybe one day soon have them actually sure. on this podcast as a, as a kind of a youth uh episode because they're going to be coming to the dallas air show with me here in just a couple weeks and you know those guys they really know their stuff and his buddy's a big german reenactor really knows he's got a you know complete Wehrmacht uniform and, and really knows his stuff so uh, Tammy just kind of came across this book and thought, oh, you know, I bet you Logan would, would really like that. So she bought him that book. And then today, miraculously, just shows up in the mail a DVD. I don't know if it's a movie or a documentary about this story that she didn't order, uh, but it came from the same place as the book. So huh. maybe cool. it's a combo <laughs> kit or something. Yeah. So, um, one yeah, more, that's that's where we're at there. <laughs> one more thing on the hurricane. Um, as I'm listening to my roof rip apart, and we're five hours into this nine hour swooping, Carrie's brother texts her saying he's already got water pouring into his roof, the ceiling. I came into the podcast studio when I grabbed three M1 helmets and put them on my bedroom, and my daughter's like, well, "What are those for?" I said, "Just in case." <laughs> I mean, we have them. The roof starts falling apart because I'll tell you this: there was a period of time, and I've never experienced this in a hurricane. All three of us felt like running. We're, we're all holding our nose, blowing our our heads. We're so felt like I was on an airplane taking off. We were sitting there doing a whole pop in our ears, and just the pressure got so bad. And the crazy thing is, too, is when you go to use a restroom in the middle of a hurricane, you'll see your water level in your toilet's going up and down like you're on a on a vessel, just because the the vacuum pushing in. Wow! You, you like the house is breathing. Yeah, or yeah, you literally see the water level in the toilets go up and down like you're on a boat. It's crazy, but um. So yeah, the the helmets. Henry, what you reading? Uh, I am reading James Holland's book Normandy Forty Four. What's that Just about? That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's uh, it, yeah. Well, I just finished Devil Dogs. You know, I, like obviously, I read the manuscript a year ago, but the printed copy to be ready in November. But no, I got uh, Normandy Forty Four. And I'm reading that, really enjoying it, because, you know, now that it's turning cool, I'm kind of thinking ETO, Normandy-type stuff. So, 
I'm enjoying that a lot. Jeff, what you reading? Well, I'm actually a bad example now. I, you know, I finished Bloody Ridge and Beyond, and guys, it's I got to read that. I book. have it. It is. It's a must read, and it's so well done because at the the last chapter of the book is in 2002. Wow. When this guy goes back to Guadalcanal and to Lagi, where his best friend was killed right, right next to the cricket field um, or the pitch, you know, as they call it. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a really cool, that same time that I'm you know, thinking about this possible trip, I'm reading about this guy that goes back, you know, that was in the Raider battalion. Um, so it's really well done because, uh, Don, you're going to, you're going to see some things in there that you have mentioned on the show. I know more than once with the strike from the dock workers, mm-hmm. um, in, oh, yeah. I, was it well, Wellington, right? New Zealand. Down in New Zealand. Yep. Yeah. So there, there's mention of that, you know, he goes all through that. Uh, and then he actually ends up, um, I can't remember the unit he ended up in, but it was with the six Marines, uh, on Oki. So there's kind of that whole part of the book too. So it's heavy Guadalcanal, heavy early Solomons, but then he does, he comes back to San Diego, but then he does eventually go back over uh, again for Okinawa. So I'm a bad example right now because I'm actually reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein again, um, which obviously has no World War II connection. We could probably conjure something up, but there's not much there. (laughs) Uh, But this is actually going to be my next book. And I know, what Henry said, it's getting colder and it's ETO, you know, we're getting ready to watch band of brothers, hopefully another month or so, but it's been a long time since I've read anything Tarawa with November coming up. I want to be prepared. I'd love to do a few, uh, at least one episode. I know Don loves Tarawa. I can't wait to put my P 42 frog skins on just for the sake of the show. One day. Are you going to go green um, outside or Brown outside? I do green out. I do green out. Yeah. But um, anyway, so what's that, Henry? <laughs> I said heading inland. Yep. You know, brown yep. on the beach, heading inland. You know. Right. right. I, I usually go brown trousers, green shirt. That way I represent the sand and the jungle. There you go. Well, yeah, because when you stand up, you're the tallest thing on a beach anyway. Yep. There's one reenactor. <laughs> There's one reenactor. You need to wear blue. <laughs> <laughs> blue helmet. I'll steal a Navy helmet. There's one reenactor who's taller than me. We call him... Um, F-O-S, first one shot. <laughs> He's telling me. <laughs> there you go. Well, so anyway, Jeff, so, what's that book, man? Yeah, so for, for the sake of our listeners, Manual of Heroism, Tarwa, The Struggle for the Gilberts, November 1943 by Michael Graham. Um, this is what I think I have 11 books uh, on Tarwa, not counting like reference type coffee table books, but just, you know, books to books to read cover to cover kind of thing. I think I have 11. And, and this was one of my favorite ones between this and um, there was another one called Utmost Savagery, mm-hmm. and I don't Joe remember Alexander. The... Was that Alexander's? Joe, Joe okay, Alexander, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Hamill did a great one. I think he did, uh, he co-authored one uh, called 76 Hours. Yes. I remember that one, that one being a really good one. Uh, and One Square Mile of Hell, uh, John Wukovitz, One Square Mile of Hell was great too but uh, I, I think i'm going to start start back with this one i promised my wife because i have now i think over two thousand books um i'm not i'm not gonna buy a book online i'm not gonna do it so unless i get some somebody goes hey uh, hey Jeff, I, I heard you like the world war ii here's a whole box of books on tarwa unless that happens i'm not gonna buy another book on tarwa. well and you can send a few to me because i'd like to add to my tarwa collection 
let me tell you, I'm actually I'm waiting for the day that you show up and, and spend a weekend here at my house because I'm going to fill a World War II footlocker of books for you to drive home with you. I'd love that. God. But they're going to – I've already got a stack. So And Don, same thing. No. If Don can make it back to Texas, I've got stuff set aside for you that I'm just not going to mail you. you got to come get it. <laughs> <laughs> now, for those of you listening, Jeff just said he wasn't going to buy any more books. So if you want to send Jeff your books, you can send them to Care of Jeff, Cop said at Digital 410 at 2710 <laughs> Del Prado Boulevard South, Unit 2, Box 209, Cape Coral, Florida, 33904, and we'll make sure they get to him. That is the Jeff right. Cop said a book fund. Care of Jeff Copsetta, Digital 410, 2710, Del Prado Boulevard South, Unit 10, Box 209, Cape Pro, Florida, 33904. Now, before and I Don's going to be like, I don't know what happened to all these books. I guess they floated <laughs> away. They never got here. So before I get to my book, I want to make sure Henry shouts this out because it's been a week or two and he posted it online. But you, friend, got a kick-ass flag sent to us from yeah. the Marine Corps Division with your father's namesake. And yep. we will post photos on WTSPWorldWar2.com as well as our Facebook and Instagram page. By the way, we do have an Instagram page, thanks to Jeff Copsetta for making that happen. But, yeah, let's see that flag. Yeah, this is uh, – so my wife pressed over it. She, we actually need to do that again. But this was sent to me by um, – K-3-5. see that okay? Yep. Back up. Um, I've become friends, thanks to John McManus. I have become friends with Lieutenant John Fiorelli. He is the – uh, executive officer of K-3-5. And he and I have talked on the phone a few times. He's he. I'd love to be able to get it to where I could go visit the guys, but that means going to Camp Pendleton. I don't know when I could make that happen. But anyway, I, I asked him, I said, John, can you, can, because I had seen a picture of their flag on some maneuvers or something. I said, man, is there any way you could get me that one of those flags to get the guys to sign it? And so he did. It took took a few weeks to get it together because they stay on the move a lot, obviously. Sure. But uh, it's a just beautiful. I can't wait to hang it up. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. Some of the things these guys wrote on here are are just moving to say the least. And their their company call sign is Sledgehammer. That's awesome. So uh, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm I'm honored beyond words. Now the book I'm reading, I'm rereading in preparation because I am still in contact. Obviously there was a, about a 12 day hiatus. Um, but I did reach out to her. That is the granddaughter of wild Bill Garnier, Mrs. Deborah, Debbie Rafferty and her father are both coming on the show. I'm in uh, talks with her. She's getting with her dad to figure out what day, what date works best for them. And so I've gone back and I'm rereading one of the first world war two books I bought. Um, cause I, as I told the story before I got a, a uh, gift card to Books A Million back before I started reading. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with that? And I was at the LAX airport, and I saw this book, Brothers in Battle, Best of Friends. This is the uh, story about Wild Bill Garnier and Babe Heffron. If you guys haven't read this book, you don't have this book, and you're a huge uh, Band of Brothers fanatic, this is a great companion piece to that book or those books, all the ones, um, Dick Winters and all those. There is stuff in here that Wild Bill talks about that you haven't heard any other stuff. And a perfect example, later on in their training, um, when the medics were training, we all know how everybody felt about Sobel. They weren't exactly fans. And so he tells a story about 
when the medics were learning, they, they got to get real practice, right, Jeff? You don't want medics going to combat without real practice. And so they sedated Sobel and they actually cut his thigh open and then sewed it back shut. And when he came through, he was pissed, but no, no one would say who the hell did it. So the medics actually cut his thigh open and sutured him back up so they can get real world experience. And no one ever told him who did it. And he was rip shit pissed, as you can imagine. But that's just one of the many stories in here. And I just started rereading it. I'm on uh, on a chapter four before they even got into combat, but it's a great book. And um, the author, it's a cool story because the author who got into this did a story for the Philadelphia Press right around the time Band of Brothers came out, and the news article in the newspaper was so enticing that the publishing company reached out to her because she just so happened to be friends with uh, I think Babe Heffern's daughter or granddaughter, and that's how she got in. But it's a great book. Um, once again, if you're a aficionado of, you know, Band of Brothers and 101st Airborne, definitely want to add that to your collection. It's a it's a very good read, and um, it's done in the way where um, she it's it's kind of interview style, where she interviews um, both of them, tells a story in their words, their vernacular, their slang, and then fills in some of the missing pieces with. Uh, content from other books and she's very open about it in the beginning and it's written by um the forwarders by tom hanks but it is actually written by there's so much data on the cover here um did it robin post so it's written by robin post it's a really good book and so hopefully we'll have debbie on here shortly and um once again i want to thank everybody for listening and please head over to wtspworldwar2.com click on that patreon link sign up i gotta get some new t-shirts up but all of our wtsp world war ii shirts are still available as always and uh please head over and like us on our youtube channel if you haven't done so uh we'll start with jeff jeff you got anything to plug coming down the pike uh this coming saturday we've got our fall program at the airport the at best the title Museum. ever pumpkins and paratroopers <laughs> <love> that title <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's again, it's a kid event and our local uh, grocery store here. It's an amazing company. Um, they uh, they donate 100 pumpkins to us and we have a retired art teacher come out from the school district and she supplies paints and paintbrushes and smocks. And we set up tables around all the static aircraft that are sitting outside. We have an M60 tank sitting out front, too. So just kind of all around in this grassy area. And it's about a two hour program. We're supposed to have our C-47 finally on site. It's airworthy. It's ready to go. We've got a crew standing by. We're waiting for one last check off, and that C-47 will be coming home. Fantastic. Uh, so we're hoping that that lands before Saturday. And uh, some, um, I'm trying to work with a couple different airborne reenacting groups uh, to get some actual paratroopers on site, of course, to uh, to talk with the kids and take pictures and possibly give folks tours inside the C-47. and. Just kind of an afternoon on, you know, Saturday in October, come out, paint a pumpkin. You can take it home or you can leave it. We'll display it in the museum. We'll have, you know, food trucks out there and, and free admission to the museum during the program. And we'll have a bunch of us out in uniform. I've got a military vehicle preservation group coming out. We'll have a half dozen army trucks or so for, for kids to climb on. Just, just a fun day. And I do want to mention one more thing real quick before we go, uh, having to do with the museum. It's something I'm really proud of. This is um, for, for those uh, of the listeners who are also members of the commemorative air force, uh, there's a, there's a monthly um, publication that comes out called the dispatch, you know, the little magazine 
And there's a note in there from the, the president of the CAF and, and what they're doing and all the different squadrons all around the tree. And this last issue was they, it's kind of an education issue. And uh, they featured a, a nice little write up and a picture of us uh, from a, uh, an outreach event that we did back in July. And so the picture is, is myself and my son and, and his best friend that I was telling you about and a couple other high school students who are part of our cadet program at the Highland Lakes. And it's just, just a nice little write-up about all the ways to reach out. Um, we were actually set up at that grocery store's parking lot. They asked us to come out there for the day, a free event for kids to come out and, and learn about different things that we have in the community. And so we had a few vehicles on display. And that's the second time we've made that, that publication in the past year. And, and for our little museum and our awesome. little town. Congratulations. Um, yeah. That just kind of makes you feel good. It makes you definitely makes you feel like you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I think, I feel like we're making it for the right reasons yeah. to show that we're doing things in the community. Uh, when we made the magazine uh, less than a year ago, it was when we were first pinning uh, our first group of cadets, when we first started the cadet program at the museum. And that was kind of a centerfold picture of our first group of cadets and uh, that was actually at our pumpkins and paratroopers event last year. So um, the biggest thing, uh, you know, like Henry said, to have sledgehammer as a call sign for, for a Marine Corps unit serving on the battlefields today, uh, you know, for Don to keep the memory alive, reenacting and all the traveling that he's done, all the hard work he's put into it to keep the stuff alive. And then to, to be able to pass it down to our youth. And uh, you know, when I, for a closing remark, when I spoke a few weeks with, in Corsicana with Don Graves, that's exactly how I ended it, that uh, I want the World War II generation and the greatest generation to understand because it's too easy for them to get caught up in the youth of today mm-hmm. uh, kind of mentality that they don't know, they won't ever know, they won't care, and they don't understand. Um, that may be true for the majority, but there are still some uh, that we are passing the torch down to that know who Henry's father is and what he did that understand those, uh, you know, that walked and died on those, uh, on those battlefields that Don represents every time he puts P-41s on. So, um, it's nice to see there's a new generation. They do care about world war two. They cannot necessarily relate to it. They cannot. And the reason they can't, is because the greatest generation did such an amazing job mm-hmm. to make sure that now four generations detached, we're still enjoying those tomorrows that those boys never got that we left on those bloody battlefields in both the Pacific and the European mm-hmm. theater. So well said, sir. Very That's well said. Henry, you have to follow that up. <laughs> you got the plug. Yeah, really. Um, <laughs> I will say at this point, a month from now is the International World War II Conference in New Orleans, um, and I will be on a panel there with Saul David and Richard Frank discussing Devil Dogs. Nice. So that's that's been in the works for a while, but um, and I, you know, I like I mentioned earlier that I read my printed copy that Saul sent me, and uh, went through and made notes and highlighted some things just to have it fresh in my mind and. And, and so looking forward to that, there are going to be a lot of, you know, for guys like us, man, it's, it's like, you know, rock star heaven, so to speak, because some of the heavy hitters that will be there. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. 
So, and, and also let me say, we talked about artwork last time, Don, I have your prints right here. I haven't forgotten it. I am going to send them, but I figured with all your chaos. Yeah. You know, Care, care of I, Jeff Copsetta. Yeah, no. Well, Jeff, and I mean, you have both of these, Jeff. You already had off the beach. I sent you off the line. So Don's sending both of them to Don. So he'll have both of them. Good. Uh, Good. So Don, I just got to get, you know, all this stuff I've been dealing with with my mom has sucked up a lot of time, but I just got to get to the post office and get them in a tube and get them to you. I have your address on a piece of paper right there. So. It's the same address that we gave out. So if you want to send Jeff Copps out of your book, send them to Digital Fort 2710, <laughs> yeah. Del Prado Boulevard South, Unit 2, uh, Box 209, Cape Coral, Florida, 33904. That campaign is called Books for Jeff. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I, do, I do have something coming in the mail that I hope to have before our next podcast. That's all I'm going to say. And on that note, that's going to wrap... Go ahead. No, 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 that's it. That's On that it. note, leave y'all hanging. that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. We want to thank each and every one of you for myself, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. I'm Don Abernathy, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>